what a perfect description of sacramental theology. It's not just bread, y'all. This is the body of Christ. It's not just some Welsh's grape juice or a little bit of cheap port. This is, this is the blood and the life energy of the risen God in our throats. Thank you for joining us on the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Sophia Ross. If you've been listening to the Image Podcast from the beginning, then you know that I'm a new voice around here. I actually just moved to Seattle to join the Image Journal team as their marketing associate. I'm really excited to introduce today's guest, Chris Hoke, who's both a pastor and a writer. I find it's really difficult to find people who live out their faith in every part of their life, but Chris is one of those people. His ministry informs his writing, and his writing informs his ministry. I had the opportunity to hear him read this past weekend at the Seattle Pacific MFA reunion. He's a 2013 alum, and I was super impressed to see how well he connects to his audience. The conversation between Chris and our friend Paul Anderson that you're about to hear is pure Chris, ready to talk about things that might make us uncomfortable, but ultimately bring us closer to God and to each other. Here he is with Paul Anderson on the Image Podcast. Chris, how are you today? I'm good. I'm better than I've been in a long time. This, this week has been awesome. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us today. We're here on Whidbey Island at the Seattle Pacific University MFA Residency. It's a 10-day residency. And Chris, you are an alumnus of the program, correct? Mm-hmm. And when did you graduate? Four years ago, 2013. Four years ago. And in the meantime, you've published a book called Wanted, A Spiritual Pursuit Through Jail, among outlaws and across borders, is that right? That's right. Okay, awesome. And that dropped in 2015. 2015. Mm-hmm. Great. And so what brings you back to Whidbey this week? The the honor and the invitation of Scott Cairns, new director, to be to be the chaplain for the week. And when I when I was here as a student working on a lot of the material that ended up becoming the book, Father David Denny was the chaplain and it was really great to have someone of wisdom and of years and tradition, and who is, was a Catholic monk for years. So it was a little uh, exciting, but kind of unnerving when I was asked to come back and be a chaplain here among students, because I'm just, I'm just a young whippersnapper with a profanity habit, and to, to be able to be with students. But I'm a, I'm a, I'm a chaplain in the Skagit County Jail, just an hour, uh, hour away, and that's that was the main context for most of my writing is is kind of the the misadventures of of being an unordained minister among uh, felons and, and gang members uh, for the last 12 years. I didn't know you were unordained. That's yep. Wow. Well, I, I mean, our, our small organization is technically not just a faith-based nonprofit, but a church, and they had a way of giving me ministry license mm-hmm. a year or so ago, which mm-hmm. was nice. But yeah, I, I'm not formally trained through a seminary, wow. just more through. I didn't the, know that. The jail was my seminary, and a lot of great theologians have have helped and a lot of amazing ministers have loved me into shape. Absolutely. Yeah. So this week you're here, there's the morning worship sessions in before we get the lectures going on and then you are kind of doing a one-on-one spiritual mentorship, I guess. And what have you been working through with the students? What have you brought this week to Whitby Island? 
I had a total breakdown two weeks ago mm. trying to put together what would be a series of chapel talks. I think is because I'm used to doing one-offs every time I enter the jail, every time I go to the prison in Monroe, every time I'm in juvenile detention, every time I visit prisons, even if I, as a guest in Guatemalan prisons, they're always one-offs. Meaning I'm, I'm not doing a series. Right. It's, there's not like a, a building narrative arc or a structure to a larger retreat. But they're always one-offs encounters with people I might never see again. And a kind of dialogical engagement with, with the scripture, seeing Jesus in unexpected ways, with very unchurched folks and very over-incarcerated folks. So to come and do nine chapels, to have structure with it, with people who are the opposite, who are over-churched and unincarcerated, is a little out of my... Mm-hmm. A normal comfort zone. I mean, I speak in universities or churches sometimes. Normally, again, it's a one-time lecture about the prison stuff. But to really find what is edifying for these peers who are so much like me, right. I think that was uncomfortable too. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I could, I, over the years of working in the, with gang members, I could see myself in them. Sure. They're young, angry men, full of a lot of yearning for love and brotherhood, and pretty, uh, pretty pissed off at a world that wants to throw them away. But... I think it's been even harder to see myself and fellow students here mm-hmm. in a way that maybe I've always been running for myself going to the jail. And uh, it's been a, a beautiful week being with students that I think as I walk with them outside of our nine chapels that we can talk about in a sec, but just walking around the windy shores here of, of um, Camp Casey and Woodby Island, hearing what, hearing the hearts of these really amazing, hyper-competent, large-hearted students I think I'm, I've been walking with myself all week in ways that I haven't really known how to have compassion for myself, for our oftentimes, often Anglo, often privileged, often very well-read and terrified of messing up, terrified of letting people down, terrified that despite all the theological sermons and despite all our efforts to be good, and we have been good, that maybe we don't like ourselves or that God doesn't like us. And so a lot of what I've learned in the jail with guys, I've realized, is, is hardly any different than, than what we're carrying around, a feeling, a desire to be wanted. Absolutely. And a fear that maybe we're, maybe we're not if they saw who we really are. Mm. So, so you had this crisis two weeks ago where you weren't sure what to say. Yeah. What, what happened over the next two weeks? What did you, what did you bring this week after that? that happened where you were realizing that you didn't know what to say? Well, I, I decided, I, I went back to something um, that became a metaphor, a, a real extended analogy I was trying to develop in the last chapter of my book called Fire in the Hole about one of my best friends, uh, and now my colleague in ministry, his name's Nieners, mm-hmm. but he used to be a gang leader and he was in IMU in Washington State Intensive Management Unit or Solitary Confinement or The Hole. And he started to experience some pretty beautiful, mystical experiences. While I'm reading St. John of the Cross and I'm writing letters with my friend who's in intensive management unit, I was seeing some parallels. And I became really interested in how such a cruel space of, of an IMU cell, you know, which is psychologically destructive. I mean, there's massive deterioration and cruelty towards the human psyche that prisons are doing and doing this. So how can a crude and cruel shape of an IMU cell be transformed into something where something holy is happening. And that metaphor that kept coming to mind years ago when I was thinking about what's happening to my friend Nieners in this cell being repurposed is a Molotov cocktail. That, you know, a Molotov cocktail is when you take a bottle and you empty it out of whatever it was, booze or, or water or cleaning fluid, and you fill it with something more potent, more flammable, more responsive to fire, you know, fuel. 
gasoline and you light it and it becomes a bomb. And so it's an image of, of, of subversion. It, it's subversive, you know? So what's happening inside the prison system was really mysticism is repurposing the cell to use the cell against itself, mm -hmm. against the system of cruelty mm -hmm. and punishment. To, what is it to, to use that same cell and turn it into a monk's cell where the heart becomes ablaze with mercy, which eats away at the very fiber of, of punishment and hatred mm -hmm. in that place. And as I saw his spiritual disciplines grow in that cell, I just thought a lot about Molotov cocktails. Right. And so I thought maybe that would be a good structure for our nine days together, three days of emptying. And, you know, there's so much we could do in spiritual traditions of the canonic experience of, of self-emptying. So we did some centering prayer, which is really silence, learning the kind of wordy, 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 wordy people like myself, just learning how to shut up and empty ourselves of so many words. And looking at Thomas Keating in... Um, you know, the, the popularizer of centering prayer talks about the unloading of the subconscious, that when we're still, oftentimes the deeper grime, if we're emptying out that bottle, so to say, mm -hmm. trauma, unprocessed grief, hatred, mm -hmm. rage, it, it starts to surface, and that's important. Mm -hmm. and I think that's the deeper canonic experience of that stuff coming out. So it, it, exercises where we're able to do this, we're, we're pretty exciting for me. I'm looking at the Psalms where they start saying, God, search me, know me. And then by halfway through the Psalm saying, God, kill my enemies. And I used to skip over that stuff. But now seeing with a bunch of very sweet Christian kids, I mean, we were raised Christian kids, we're all adults now, right. that maybe those Psalms are not an endorsement of violence, but maybe a permission for our own rage and mm. inner violence. It's okay to come out in prayer. This is how the, the grimy stuff gets scooped out when we can really pour out whatever's in our hearts to sure. God. So there's the emptying the bottle. Then the second three days, we're looking at the filling. What is it to, to have the living word of God come into us? What is the flammable substance? And mm -hmm. looking at Nina's experience, he started crying all the damn time. And he was writing letters about as a tough gang member crying all the time. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like when he was crying, that's when he felt the Holy Spirit the most. And then I started reading St. Isaac of Syria. Mm -hmm. And he and the early church fathers take tears really seriously. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about tears as, as kerosene. And repentance is kerosene in us, and a tender, broken, open heart. And there's so much grief that these students are carrying around. And I'm seeing just cheeks kind of shiny and wet through some of these, just sitting in silence. And us talking about this uh, throughout the week and seeing students, I think those tears are flammable to the Holy Spirit. It just, the, the, the delight and the mercy of God just runs along, along the line of tears and on upon our cheeks and our hands and our hugs. So... When you're cultivating this way of seeing and this way of imparting these meaning meaning onto your experiences, mm -hmm. um, this sort of vision, when, when you're saying that you were reading Isaac of Syria while Nieners is going through this in the hole, how, so that to me is, that's you processing those experiences, right? So that's the way that you're cultivating that vision. Okay. How do you then cultivate that in your, in your relationships with either students or with prisoners? Is that something that they also begin to see in that way? Or is it something that you you experience looking at them? Maybe I'm seeing no, I'm seeing how we're not we're not that different. Mm -hmm. That what, what I'm doing with prisoners I've realized is the exact medicine we need here. Right. That I mean prisoners are dealing with, especially men, going with decades without crying. And mm -hmm. how, how how much bottled up, corroded, uncried tears there are in them. 
and that the release of that be, becomes really inviting mm-hmm. to a renewing fire of, of, of God, of, of a very mystical activity that can sure. happen in guys. But I feel what the kind of machismo in prison lack of safety keeps them bottled up. But the same kind of I'm fine, I'm strong, I'm healthy, praise the Lord, uh-huh. culture that we can come from, I think can keep us bottled up for the same reasons. And there's a lot of grief and there's a lot sure. of heartache that mm-hmm. folks are carrying around. Right. So creating a space where that can be welcomed mm-hmm. as and then practices that actually give space for that being right. in, being in silence one thing i've i've noticed in your work um and even just in this conversation is a lot of the process is naming things mm-hmm. um being willing to name something with whether it's a metaphor or just calling something what it is so mm-hmm. to say to declare that you were with prisoners that you were with outlaws boldly is a somewhat dangerous and offensive thing to say I remember when we were, I was seeing you speak at Calvin, the Calvin Festival of Faith and Writing last year, and somebody asked a question, which was a very valid question, about how do the people you work with respond when you say things like, you refer to prison as hell, or to them as prisoners, which is precisely what they are. And I can't remember your response word for word, but it's had something to do with not being afraid of what declaring those things can do not being afraid to offend the people in these actual situations because those things might actually put up more barriers those safety nets i guess of of language oh like as the homies would say not not sugarcoating shit exactly (laughs) precisely yeah i mean as i mean that's what my friend needers now that he's out he's having a real hard time becoming part of our very white Christian mm-hmm. culture, even though we're trying to be as edgy as we can. Right. So many of our, com- we're raised in a church culture. Right. And so he's, I think he says like, Chris, like, don't get all white about this. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's, he's has something that's anti-white. I think that's just a sloppy shorthand for don't become a wizard of making so many words to dance around just saying what's, what's obvious. Exactly. You guys don't like each other, mm-hmm. but you guys will throw all these things, but he'll just name something like that. If you don't like that, just tell him you don't like them. So I think that there's a real gift I've experienced, especially with gang members who just name things. And even if they're not, even if it's uncomfortable, dancing around it actually compounds the shame, it compounds the awkwardness. It, it creates more anxiety in the room. It's like why, why, you like, why we like stand-up comedians, mm-hmm. is it's not always nice what they're saying, but everyone laughs because, oh, you just popped all the tension that I walk around with every day because you just said it. That's how it feels to be in my body. Whether right. it's gross stuff, but someone's... That's the best gross humor, by the way, is when someone isn't just trying to be X-rated, but when they're naming the minor grotesqueries of, of, of us being human beings dealing with our bodies every day. Not naming it creates shame. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, not naming... Yeah, people who are in prison, people who are in an unjust system. Let's not right. call this corrections, because mm-hmm. it hasn't been about corrections for a long time. This is a human warehousing system. Prisons are human landfills. And so what better time is it for us to embrace that? I mean, name that. And then now embrace, we believe in the resurrection. Let's start ripping open the landfills and let's be against a, a human throwaway system. Mm-hmm. And let's n- know the names of the dead and grieve and write letters with them and witness, look for the resurrection of the dead and the life mm-hmm. of the world to come. Absolutely. I was wondering if you could speak actually a little bit more to that, to what it's like to come up against an institution that is so massive, such as the correction system prison industrial complex. Mm -hmm. What has your experience been like? What can people do? We're in a moment where I think a lot of people are feeling powerless Mm -hmm. in the face of large institutions. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could speak to that, whether 
that's through writing or through your ministry or through what you're doing here with the SPU students? Well, I think that, that connects well to the next part of the Molotov cocktail, which is throwing it, right? And it's, you don't just light it up so that you have like a, a, a cool repurposed bottle lamp uh, on your table, but it's a bomb. It's a resistance. I was telling this to a gal today, and she was kind of a little uncomfortable with how kind of rogue or war-ish the image is, but I like it because it's, it's the resistance of the poor. It's the resistance of the people who are being crushed by the system. And so how do we as the church repurpose things, repurpose ourselves, and to throw them against a big machine? But again, the fire is not just destruction, but we're talking about the fire of God. How do we throw the fire that St. John of the Cross talks about at this big machine? And so we've been talking through the last three days about okay, the, the emptying the bottle, the filling of the bottle, the mercy, the fire of God, the being filled, repurposing it. But then to throw it is for the spreading of the fire. So back to Niners in solitary confinement, the best spreading of the fire image that I still have, and Niners and I tell this story a lot when we travel and speak, is also in that chapter, Fire in the Hole, which is when he was in the hole, he had this vision when he got out, he wanted to be a pastor. When he got out, he wanted to start this garden and help the homies and homegirls and create a safe space where they could eat together and sing together. And he'd draw me these drawings about how, where the flowers would go and where this fire pit would be, where people would sing. And then one time I visit him in the hole and we're talking through the glass and he says, you know, I think we're already getting started in here on the garden. Like, what do you mean? You're in solitary confinement. There's not only no good soil around, but there's a, you're all alone. And he says, well, we go fishing. Now I feel we're way off track. Like, what are you talking about? You're fishing. He's just like, you know, fishing. And he reminds me of the prison practice of where prisoners take threads out of their underwear and their socks and their sheets and they put long lines together and then they break off the edge of a, of a comb and they spend hours on their knees because they have a lot of time waiting and sliding these out into the abyss between their cells and waiting for a connection. Beautiful image for prayer, right? Mm -hmm. And that these hooks eventually line up and then it becomes a line that goes back and forth. And then he says, so we go fishing and that's how we break bread together. I'm, tr I'm trying to picture what kind of food he shares because he says, Chris, I know you, you and some of the, the churches out there that I connected him to, you put money on my books, but I just want you to know all these, these guys in here, they're alone 23 hours a day. And so I check and find them. They don't have anyone sending them any mail. You know, Hector over there, he's gone six years without hearing from his mom. We got little Rob, we got Psycho. And he starts naming and drawing on his hand against the glass and puts it against the glass. He, like drawing the shape of his parish in the palm of his hand, mm. of the IMU cul-de-sac of cells. And he knows the names of the dead, so to say, and he loves them. And he's trying to share what he has through the walls of the machine. Right? So I think Nieners is really our, our model, our, our, our prototype in this. And so he's receiving, he's knowing the names of others, and how does he commune with them? And I'm like, well, how do you send food that fits under the cracks? He's like, oh, we, we fireballs. And that, my, that triggers, I'm reading St. John of the Cross, like, what are you talking about fireballs? First he's talking about fishing, then, then fire, and he's like, fireballs, you know those candies we can get on commissary? Like, oh yeah, the little atomic fireballs? He's like, yeah, so we, we, we smash those up in their little packets and they become really flat, like the pink powder. And then we can tie those to a line and then we slide those out. So I've been sending fireballs to homies all week. And I'm picturing a little crushed pink kind of wafer sliding under the cell into a door, the crack of a door of someone's cell. And right as I'm imagining this, almost like a communion wafer, Nina says, but you got to understand, Chris, it's not just candy. I know it's not organic vegetables yet, but it's not just candy. It's when that slides into a cell, dog, that's love. What a perfect description of sacramental theology. It's not just bread, y'all. This is the body of Christ. It's not just some Welsh's grape juice or a little bit of cheap port. 
this is this is the blood and the life energy of the risen God in our throats. Is it? I don't know. So is that the priestly ping in a moment that seminaries talk about, or is that the writerly imagination of metaphor? Is that sacrament? I, it's it's all of it. But I think Niners has the right role. So he was had a sacramental imagination. He had a priestly role, mm-hmm. and so church and Eucharist is happening in the bottom of hell, in in our in our kind of hellish prison system. And and I've 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 just meditated on that a lot. And that's what we were bringing in the last three days here with students. And I was so struck by how many students resonated with the metaphor of extreme isolation prolonged isolation not not to minimize solitary confinement but i think students really resonated with they're talking about even just working at home and being totally under misunderstood in their communities and and having their kids and seeing their friendships fall away as they go into their 30s and yet they want to write and that means consigning themselves even more solitude and how different objects how the material of our lives right there in our solitudes I mean, that's the work of good art, right? Is what Nieners is doing with those, with the canding, with the threads. He's not sending away for um, a catalog for Eucharistic materials for church, right? He's just using what he's got. And so that we use the threads and the materials from our own life, from our own stories, and how those can be repurposed and sacramentally charged with the fire of God, and they become love. And how can we get them through the cracks of our lives to one another? And then... To lead to your beautiful question, how do we out here connect those in, in hell? I think that's where writers, especially, can be writing letters with those who are in prison. Same way Niners slid those things out to other guys and he knew their names. How can we, as people of faith and writers, use what we have best? We've got papers and pens and pencils and time. I would challenge every person of faith out there to get to know one person, get to know their name, and create a epistolatory a, a relationship with someone in hell and write and, and write letters with them and that those letters become fodder for the fire and that they get through the cracks of the system. Their legislation's important, activism's important. There's so many important things for decarcerating in America and dismantling the hellish system. But that I think it happens more and more when those walls fall down between us. Like I deal with prisoner reentry. Guys actually get out of the prison walls sometimes, but those walls are still there. They don't know anyone in the community and we don't know them. And so they get recycled and they get swept right back into the trash bin. So how we, we can create relationships one person of faith at a time with someone in prison, I think, is a way that that can be our fireball system of letters and, and relationships and being known and telling our stories and discovering that kinship with people on the other side of those walls that we can't see, just like Niners couldn't see monster or sicko's faces, but he loved them. And that those threads went back and forth and our letters can go back and forth in our mailboxes. I don't know, I just get excited thinking about it. I guess everybody's probably dying to know what, what you're working on right now in terms of writing or just with your ministry up here in Washington State. What's going on with you outside of Whidbey Island? I, I want to write even more than ever now. I'd like to write a, a novel that might be taking place between here, Whidbey Island, and the mouth of the Skagit River. That's all I'll say about that one. Sure. But there's, there's a, non, a nonfiction book I'd like to be working on looking at prisoner reentry that I was talking about that I do a lot of, that as I have accompanied so many men coming out of prison and trying to reassimilate back into a world that doesn't really want them and they don't feel they belong to, I realized reentry. I do this with prisoners. Why does that word sound so familiar? Oh yeah, my dad was a missionary kid growing up and he's worked in missions his whole life. Reentry is the same word they describe for missionaries coming home, carrying around whole worlds inside of them that no one has seen, but they look like everyone else. 
and how the failure often of both prisoners and maybe missionaries and missionary kids, and for that matter, uh, military, for people not to assimilate to American society, that alienation goes underground. And so I, I'm looking at both this guy coming home from prison and the kind of violence in his story and him getting sucked back into the system. And that keeps throwing me back on my dad's story and some, some issues and some tensions in my home growing up. So it kind of becomes a, a boomerang memoir where I thought I was trying to look at something else and it's going into sure. that in my own life. And then the second pole of the story is a guy who's a tattoo artist in my valley who does some pretty intense stuff like body suspensions, you know, 12 surgical hooks in their back on two-ton cables being lifted off the ground. And I, 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 I'm perplexed by this guy. I like him. He keeps talking about being up there hanging on these cables an identification with Christ in his suffering. But this dude is definitely not a, a Christian. And then throws in, oh, you, you got to understand, I grew up the son of a fundamentalist preacher. And I think I want to investigate this and go look at the body suspensions. And I come back and hang out in the loud tattoo shop again and find out he wasn't just a fundamentalist preacher's kid. He was a missionary kid. And he grew up in the jungles of Papua New Guinea around a lot of piercings and ink on, on bodies. And some pretty, his story gets wilder and wilder. And looking at him coming home to America and going into a very underground culture. And there's some more I can't talk about right now about the kind of things he's into. And so how things can go underground, even either culturally underground that don't assimilate in America, or they can go underground inside of us, which is much more my father's situation. And so I guess I'm looking at what is it to go into not just the prison hell, but the underground within us and societally. So I'd like to call that re-entry and spend some time on that. Can't wait to read it. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Wish we could keep talking. Glad to have you. It's really awesome to do this, Paul. Thanks for inviting me to be part of this, and I'd encourage anyone to listen into to look into the MFA program here, even if there's an opportunity to just stop in. I think it's with Image Journal. It's a really unique blend of voices where I think people like myself have felt less less alone in the pilgrimage. Absolutely. I can test that as well as a graduate staff. Well, thanks, Chris. Special thanks to Chris for joining us on the Image Podcast and sharing his story. I was lucky enough to hear Chris read from his latest project this past weekend at an MFA alumni reunion, and trust me, you will want to get your hands on this book when it comes out. You can keep up with Chris on his website, chris-hoke.com, at undergroundministries.org, and at undergroundwriting.org. If you haven't yet, look for his book, Wanted, which is available for purchase online and in stores. A few weeks ago, Image Editor Gregory Wolf was able to sit down with the poet Scott Cairns, who was recently appointed as the program director for the SPU MFA program. We'll have the full interview for you on our next episode, but in the meantime, here's Scott reading his poem, Nepsis. I'm going to read you Nepsis, which has a little anaphora activity in it. But we don't. We know this word nepsis. Uh, well, we, as in Greg Wolf, know. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So nepsis is uh, this. Uh, uh, it's watchfulness. It's often translated watchfulness, and so the fathers, uh, especially the you know, like the saintly writers of the te of texts on prayer, will counsel uh, developing a, a watchfulness because. 
as we as we all realize during our spiritual development is that we can make some ground and then unguardedly lose it right <laughs> like that <laughs> and start and you have to start over sometimes even farther back than where you started before but so anepsis is this accompaniment it's a disposition of watchfulness being aware of of what you're susceptible to and avoiding it and so as not to lose ground a little bit like the psalms do that a lot right the yeah. what the watchman yeah is yeah. you have to be alert to be Aware. Okay. So Nepsis. Nepsis. Notice how the piercing winter chill fails quite to enter the heart's bright furnace. Oh, brilliant bright furnace. Notice how the yammering electorate also fails to obtain against the heart's quiet any ground, any likely purchase to nudge the weight of long acquired stillness. Oh, pulsing stillness. What heat. What light, what pulse is this? What recourse has the weary pilgrim save to stand before that endless beckoning, to draw his every scattered member into one, to draw and so be drawn? What shall he say? O braided being, include within your deep enormity this, these, every, all. That brings us to the end of our show. Thank you for listening to the Image Podcast and a special thanks to Paul Anderson and Chris Hoke for sharing their conversation with us. The Image Podcast is produced by Image Journal, a leading literary quarterly that explores the intersection of art, faith, and mystery. You can find us at imagejournal.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching Image Journal. Over the Rhine provides our theme music, which you are humming along to right now. Thanks to Luke Farquhar for helping edit sound and David Rither for teaching us how to make this podcast even better. I'm your host, Sophia Ross, and I'll see you in two weeks when our own Gregory Wolf interviews Scott Cairns. Thank you.